Uh, this has been a great service so far. We've got one last thing, and that's the sermon. We're going to keep it short. I don't want you to be alarmed. There are five people that are going to come up here. The teaching team that's been doing the sermon series this summer is going to come up and join us, and we're going to do things a little differently this morning. I want to tell you, this: the series we've been studying this summer in the life of David from 1 Samuel it has been called Devoted, and this week we get to the story of Abigail. So I want to show you a picture of Abigail uh, that's Abigail on the left and Quentin on the right. You don't need to pay attention to him. He's just my son-in-law. But Abigail <laughs> is my daughter. And we named Abigail before she was born. We knew this story out of 1 Samuel 25 because Abigail was a woman of beauty and of spiritual maturity and wisdom. She understood how God worked in the world, what kind of decisions and behaviors he would honor and what kind he would not. And so our prayer for our daughter was that she would grow up and be a blessing to her household and to the people around her as Abigail in the Bible was. So this morning, we're going to dig into the story of Abigail. Let's pray first. Father, thank you so much for an incredible service so far. This sermon is going to seem anticlimactic after the baptism. So we just say all glory and honor to you. And we pray that you would uh, help us to glean insights from this story of Abigail and David that would change our lives this week. We give you this next few minutes, and we pray that you would be at work. Amen. Uh, Thanks, Alex. This morning's going to be a little different. This will be a conversation, so bear with us. We would like for you to enter into the conversation with us. Now, your part's going to be silent. Just in the interest of time. We won't go long, but we we wanted to (laughs) not have you guys. We have printed out the text for you. So you should have gotten that in your program. We've not only printed it out, but we've left big margins in case you want to write some little notes in. So let's have fun together. Literally, let's have fun together today as we explore God's Word, hopefully in a powerful and creative way. Now, I don't want to do this through the whole text, but just to make sure that we're all fully engaged with what God has to say to us today, I apologize for the spiritual aerobics I'm going to read the first section, verses 1 through 9, and just for this section, let's go old school, and I want you to stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. And so you've got to understand, this is one of the most powerful voices in the history of Israel. He anointed Saul, the first king, and he's also anointed David. He's kind of a consistent spiritual presence, and he's also a protective covering for David. And now he's died, which makes David's position even more precarious. And if you've been with us this summer for any of our messages, you'll appreciate just how precarious a position David is in. Then David moved down into the desert of Maon. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and remember that name, Nabal. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent, and follow this, he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and and greet him in my name. Say to him, 
long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time when your shepherds were with us. We did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, uh, be favorable toward my young men, since we come at festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. You may be seated. So a couple of notes here. I read in one commentary writing about this text that it sounds almost like David is setting up the Israelite mafia here. Hey, we'll protect your sheep and all your stuff if you'll pay us in kind. But as we analyze this text, if you read the text for yourself, not at all. In fact, quite the opposite. You know, David has got a bunch of men with swords at his disposal. And they've been out in the wilderness protecting this guy's sheep, not touching a thing. They could have at any moment gone to these shepherds and said, hey, at sword point, hey, you know, we need dinner tonight. Not only did they not do that, but they protected them from others. So they have protected this man. It's now festival time. And we're going to find out later in the text that Nabal throws a great feast. And and according to the rules and the laws of hospitality in the Middle East and specifically uh, among the Jews, this would have been a great time to take care of the poor, to take care of the needy. It was a very appropriate cultural request that David is making. So he goes to this very wealthy man at festive time and he says, hey, you're throwing a huge banquet. How about whatever you can spare for me and my men? I think, Alex, you're next, but any comments? I think we should start off with, we all agree with that. So, picking up with verse 10, Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? So we get to see a little bit of Nabal's character here. He's a guy who has a lot of money, but he thinks it all belongs to him. And all of his wealth is there for him, not to bless other people. So this reasonable request from David, uh, submitted with ten young men, not carrying swords, not as biker dudes, his toughest, roughest warriors, but he sends ten young guys in to ask politely for anything they can spare. And Nabal hurls insults back at David's men. And he belittles David, and instead of looking at him as the coming king of Israel, he compares him to some servant who's rebelled against his master. So you get to see a little bit of Nabal's character. So David's men turn quick around. Inter- quick interruption, Alex. Okay. I think at, when we were first reading this, you first read that, and you think, Nabal may not know who this is. What's the indication that that's not the case? Well, he knows who his dad is. Yeah. <laughs> he, he knows, clearly, he's the son of Jesse. I think later also we see that Abigail knows who David is. So if Abigail knows who David is, there's a pretty good chance that he does as well. Yeah, and I think we missed something up till now. You know, the writer has given something away just in the name Nabal. If you have a study Bible or you remember the, the, you know, the five years of Hebrew you took in college, you'll remember <laughs> that Nabal means fool. So right off the bat, we're looking at what is a fool going to do in this situation? And he lives up to his name quite well. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting, though, is that it refers to Nabal as a Calebite. And I think 
typically when we see something called out like that, like we saw that Doag was an Edomite, when we see that somebody's called out, there's something the narrator is trying to get us to see. And Calebite, what it meant that he came from the line of Caleb. Caleb was one of the faithful. Faithful spies, yeah. So uh, it's even more appalling that this guy is coming from a place where he should know better. And I think that's the, the emphasis here. I think we also made the observation when we were walking through this that there's probably some political stuff going on here that we don't understand. This is a wealthy guy who is invested in the status quo because he's doing well with the status quo. So he doesn't want to see this rebellion fomented that David seems to be leading. So he's not a fan of David, I think. So... Picking up with verse 12, David's men turn around, go back, report to David, and David is so infuriated by this that he kind of goes with the nuclear option, and it's like, all right, everybody get your swords. And he's very strategic. 400 of the men are gearing up to go and get what they need and kind of teach this Nabal a lesson. 200 stay behind to guard the supplies. We think maybe David, you know, he's frustrated. He's tired of being chased by King Saul with Samuel's death, he's probably feeling isolated and alone. So he's not at his best, perhaps. But this is still a pretty, you know, this is a pretty strong reaction from David. And so... Well, let's pause for dramatic effect. How's the drama? Ooh. I can't help but notice that David has become a man of the sword. Hmm. And, uh, and up until this point, he really hasn't been a man of the sword. Yeah, but up until this point, he's been also seeing a lot of betrayal. Because remember the people of Keilah, they betrayed him. Yeah. And then he almost gets taken out by Saul. And now all he's asking for is just a few supplies, and then this guy insults him. It, so, is, it is strange, though, that in just the previous chapter, vengeance is not an option. Like he's so not, the previous chapter, chapter Saul tr- is in the cave, and yeah. he doesn't kill him. He has an yeah. opportunity to kill him. Yeah, he has an opportunity. So we, we get to chapter 25, and clearly he's just reached the breaking point. You know, well, I which, think also uh, he doesn't want to kill Saul because Saul is God's anointed. Nabal is an idiot, and he deserves to die. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like, enough. I will teach this guy. Yeah, I mean, it is I can possible. Fix maybe this maybe problem, it's just you know. a... Uh, Folks, you heard it here. <laughs> I think the other thing that's missing is the text is glaringly silent. He does not inquire of the Lord here. Hmm. He gets ticked off, and he says, put on your swords. Yeah, he knows exactly how to fix this problem. (laughs) I mean, he does. He's got a really good solution in mind. So on with verse 14. Uh, The servants, this is interesting. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, about this whole experience. Now, you could argue that perhaps Nabal is, you know, his view of this situation is like, ah, this mongrel from the desert wants my stuff. And so he's incensed. And you could, you could read, you know, David's angry. So he's not looking at the situation objectively. But this servant is probably the most accurate indicator of the true reality of this story. And he says, hey, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings. So David came friendly. It was all very polite, very, you know, humble and our master hurled insults at him. So this is the servant's characterization of things. And these men were very good to us. They didn't mistreat us. The whole time we were in the fields, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were all around. So not only did David's men, and I think it's interesting, David was a shepherd, and here David is in the desert taking care of shepherds in their flocks. 
And so the servant says, David took great care of us. They didn't treat us poorly. And in fact, they were like a wall around us. They treated us excellently, protected us 24-7. We didn't have to worry about somebody trying to steal our sheep or anything. And so his characterization of David and his men is very high integrity. And he says to Abigail, now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. I mean, even the servant understands the reality of the situation that Nabal does not get. Maybe it's because this servant had been out in the fields and he knew what kind of men David had. You know, David's the kind of guy that when Saul says, go kill 100 Philistines, he kills 200 just to kind of get the job done really well. (laughs) And so this servant is worried, and he characterizes Nabal. He says, he's such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. So he doesn't even bother going to the master. He goes to Abigail because Abigail, obviously, over time, has proven to be the one that you go to when there's a problem that needs to be fixed because Nabal, he doesn't fix problems. He creates problems. Some of you are in work environments like that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Some of you have people in your family like that. And, man, we need more Abigails. (laughs) So Abigail hears this from the servant, and she doesn't chastise him. She doesn't grouse at him for like, hey, you can't talk about my husband that way. She understands the gravity of the situation, and verse 18 says, Abigail acted quickly. Immediately, she gathers these supplies. You think about it, one of the guys pointed out, 10 young men coming in, no donkeys or mules or anything like that to carry supplies on. You could load up a couple of sacks of food with each of them, and they could carry it back to David. But, man, Abigail, just multiple times what they had originally asked for, this amazing offering of food, and it's like a feast for David and his men. And she sends her servants off, and she says, I'll get there as quickly as I can. And she didn't bother to tell her husband, Nabal. We'll hear more about that in a minute. Then there's this uh, meeting between Abigail as she's heading up the mountain, and David and his men as they're coming down the mountain. And you get the impression they kind of come around to Ben, and they meet in this mountain ravine. And David is saying, wow. You know, here I spent all this time and effort being a righteous man and protecting this guy's uh, sheep and his men, and all of this good that I've invested in in them has been returned by evil. So I did good, but Nabal is offering me evil. And he makes this rash oath, this hasty pronouncement. His commitment is, may God deal with David... I guess that's really important because he's talking about himself in the third person now. You know, may God deal with me so severely if by morning there's even one male alive in the household of this guy. I mean, I'm going to slaughter them. There's going to be nothing left of this guy or his family. You guys jump in. Well, for me, the takeaway is if you're a fool, you better marry a good woman. (laughs) Amen. Some of us guys can say amen to that, right? (laughs) The thing is, who could applaud that comment, John? It, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yes. All, all I know is Nabal married up, you know? Yeah. And we need more Abigail. Interesting comment, though. She's intelligent. She's beautiful. He's an idiot. He's mean and surly. In our context, we're thinking, how... But he's fabulously wealthy. So in reality, for the ancient Near Eastern culture, she's married up. She's, she, he ends up with a woman like Abigail because he's the richest dude in the area. And he's Saul's guy, evidently. 
I think it's really cool just seeing Abigail's intervention already, just the number of teachers that God has for David. You would expect David to have had the brightest teachers just based on his earlier position with Saul. And yet God continues to teach him seemingly through unsuspecting people. He made a rash vow. He was ready to really make a mistake I think he would later regret. God brings a teacher, and that teacher is Abigail. And there's two sides of that. There's the one side that says, praise God that David had the wherewithal to listen and to receive from the teacher. And then there's the other side that says, thank God there was an Abigail who was ready to stand in the gap. I think we also need to just, it's obvious, but we need to remind ourselves, David is a dude, and this is not going to go well for Nabal. All right, Dean, you're up. I'm going to be reading from the King James Version, uh, verse 23. And when Abigail saw David, she hasted and lighted off her donkey and fell, off, uh, fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground and fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me, let this inequity be. Let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience and hear the words of thine handmaid. Now, I just find it interesting the way she, she went about this. She sees David coming. She falls off her donkey. She jumps off and falls at his feet. And she's taking the responsibility of what Nabal did on herself. She's saying, blame me. Think of it as me, as the one who did this and insulted you. Courage, wisdom, all of the above. Mm -hmm. Verse 25. Let my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man of Belial, even Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young men of my Lord, whom thou didst send. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, seeing the Lord hath withholden thee from coming to shed blood, and from avenging thyself with thine own hand, now let thine enemies, and they that seek evil to my Lord, be as Nabal. Interesting the way she, she puts that. She's coming and saying that, I have come to stop you from doing this. She's taking it actually for granted that he's going to listen. So bold is the way she's approaching David that she's not even giving him room to keep the anger there. She's deflecting it and saying, blame me, number one. But understand what I know about you. I know that the Lord means good for you. I know what your future is. She's almost prophesying here. And it's just amazing how she puts this forward before him and says, hey, look, in light of what God has in store for you, and this is a sure, you and I standing here, because of what God is going to do for you, he sent me here to stop you from doing something that you might, like Bill said, later regret. Yeah, and, and just to echo that, Dean, I think when it talks uh, in verse uh, 26, now then, my, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. I mean, she's recognizing that God is using her right. as the restrainer. Right. All right, verse 27. And now this blessing which thine handmaid hath brought unto my Lord, let it even be given unto the young men that follow my Lord. I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord fighteth the, the battles of the Lord, and evil hath not been found in thee all thy days. You know, it's, it's pretty cool the way she says that. She brings to David the thing that he was looking for to begin with. He was only looking for a, little, a few supplies to be able to give to his men, Right? And because of the response of her husband, he's ready to kill. But she brings this as a way to appease him and say, hey, look, this is what you were looking for. 
take this and then now look at me. I'm looking for forgiveness for me and for my house. Because she actually makes, she owns this responsibility of saying, because I didn't see when you had your men come forward, because I wasn't there, this is the reason why this happened. So I'm going to take the responsibility for it. Because in other words, if I were there, this wouldn't have gone down like this. Yet a man is risen to pursue thee and to seek thy soul, but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. And the souls of thine enemies, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord shall have done to my Lord according to all the good that he hath spoken concerning thee, and shall have appointed thee ruler over Israel, this shall be no grief unto thee, nor offense of heart unto my Lord, either that thou hast shed blood causeless, or that my Lord hath avenged himself. But when the Lord shall have dealt well with my Lord, then remember thine handmaiden. Now, you know, it's interesting the ways that she used these words in verse 29. She said, your soul will be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. You know, David would have remembered well what this meant. Because as a shepherd boy, he would have had a pouch. And that pouch was designed for him to throw small stones in as he looked over the sheep. And for each sheep that he saw and was accounted for, he would put a stone in. And that simply meant that they were accounted for and under his watchful eye. And so what she's saying is, that because even though people are coming after you, and she's referring to Saul here, even though Saul is coming after you, your life is so protected by God that you are like you are in his pouch. You are present and accounted for, and he is looking after you. And she mentions a sling, and we all know what David did with a sling. As a shepherd boy, he knocked out lions and bears, but he also took out Goliath with that. It's just amazing how she just uses those small little things to really grab his attention and divert all of that anger that he had, that murderous anger, towards something good. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. When you read through this chapter real quickly, the tendency is to compare and contrast. So what you want to do is you want to look at David and how he acts versus Nabal the fool. Or maybe you want to compare and contrast Abigail and her wisdom and her character and the way she approaches David and Nabal the fool. But we were making note that the real comparison, I think, the real comparison is between what David would have done and what David ends up doing. David would have acted impetuously, and David would have gone off and slain this whole village, and what he does instead is he restrains himself. And the critical question for us is, why? How did he get from here to here? How does that contrast happen? And here's the punchline. We realized as we were talking about this, you know, it's incredible as you watch this story unfold to see how God is step-by-step preparing David to be king, preparing him to be a leader, even preparing him to be a warrior. But God's primary work in David is not preparing him to be king. God's primary work in David is not preparing him to be a warrior, certainly. God's primary work in David is to prepare him to be a follower, to prepare him to be somebody who will trust God, no matter what the circumstances are. You're being chased, you're in a cave, trust me, I'll take care of it. You're facing a giant, trust me, I'll take care of it. You're asking for help from a fool, an utter fool, and he insults you. Trust me, I'll take care of it. So David said to Abigail, and here David goes into his psalm writing mode, 
Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have left alive by daybreak. And I think in verse 35, we, we really see what that followership looks like when David says, Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I've heard your words and granted your request. You know, David shows himself, he's a listener. That's what really followership is characterized by. He heard this woman's request. He listened and he acted on it. And I think that's what shows his maturity, is once he heard the word of correction and redirection, he accepted it and was able to to move with that. Now, of course, while this is going on, Nabal is partying like a rock star. If you read on a little bit in the chapter, now think about this. This guy's life is like this close to being destroyed, like everything he's worked for. I mean, it's, it's, his life is ready to collapse. He, he's getting wasted. I mean, that's really what he's doing. The Bible is just so honest, isn't it? It really is. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. <laughs> he thinks he's the king. That's awesome. He was in high spirits and very drunk. Very. Very. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I don't know if you've ever had to deal with people that were very drunk. That's usually not the best time to have a conversation. <laughs> so Abigail knows this. She's a wise woman. So it says in verse 36, so she told him nothing until daybreak. That's probably a good idea. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things. Not exactly a cure for a hangover. Because it says his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. This is tough to read in a few ways. We don't really know exactly how he became like a stone. Did he have some kind of cardiac issue? I mean, did, did what was about to happen to him actually you know, finally sink into his consciousness? We, we don't know. Did he have a stroke? We're not really sure. But I have to say that verse 38, is, that's scary. To me, I think that's scary because it shows that the Lord directly intervenes, and sometimes it's not for good. I wouldn't want to be Nabal here. And what's scary to me is I've been a fool at certain times. Hmm. Now, luckily, I've married a good woman. <laughs> but I have been a fool. Somebody's laughing way too hard at that. <laughs> I think most of us have been. We've been fools. Yeah, you know, I think... John, David is fierce. God is fiercer. And God handles Nabal. (laughs) Yeah, he's done. Yeah, he's done. He's done. And once again, we see God give David a mulligan, right? He chooses one path. He's really going down the wrong direction. And God sends Abigail to keep him or to redirect him back to the right course. And I can't help for my own life, to think about the times that God has used people in my life to redirect me, maybe after I've already blown it or um, 
you know, gone down a certain direction, and God has gone, no, that's really not where I wanted you. I wanted you over here. I made the observation when we were talking about this that this is kind of a reminder that God is not saving David throughout this. God is not saving David from Saul. God is saving David from David. God is delivering David from his best intentions, which would repeatedly, if allowed, get him into trouble. He's given him a pretty awesome lesson because here Nabal is the one who sets himself up as against, against David as his enemy, and God took care of David's enemies. Yeah. So the lesson is don't, don't worry about your enemies. I got this. Mm-hmm. And he proves it with Nabal. Dealing with your enemies is an easy thing, exactly. God says. You just follow me. That's mm-hmm. it. And I think that's what we see in verse 39. When you first read this, it sounds a little bit rough that David is, David is happy that Nabal is dead. Well, listen to what he says. He says, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his head. This is what, what Dean and Ed were just talking about. God is going to take care of your, your enemies You don't have to sit there and plot revenge or foster that anger towards anybody, the people that cut you off in traffic, your boss. It doesn't matter who it is, your neighbor that lets the dog go on your lawn. It doesn't matter. God's going to take care of that. John, I'm going to wrap this up. The story ends with David proposing and marrying Abigail. And remember, these stories are descriptive, not prescriptive. So men, don't you go out and do likewise because this is now his third wife. But we need to make one more really big note here. So we said earlier there's this contrast, and you made this point the other night, Dean. It's epic. There's this contrast between what David would have done and what David actually does. David's best intention and then what he actually executes on. And, And what's the gap? What happens in the middle? And what happens in the middle is this wise, intelligent voice of grace is spoken to David, and David listens. That's what happened in the middle. And Dean was just describing for us that voice of Abigail taking the responsibility, taking the stupidness of the whole situation, Nabal's and David's on herself, making a way for David to get from here to here. Please forgive me. Here's everything you were asking for offering a kind of epic grace and deliverance, really, from here to here. And we were all sort of awestruck when Dean makes the comment, we have an Abigail in our lives. And his name is Jesus, who took it all on, who said, Father, forgive me. When you look at them, when you look at these fools, don't look at them. Yeah, those fools, yeah. (laughs) When you look at them, don't look at them, look at me. When you see them, I want you to see me. He takes it on himself. You know, this morning and outside, this is a reminder to us, we need an Abigail in our lives so that we can get from here to here. And we have one. And what we need to do Listen, inquire of him, ask that voice of wisdom. There's a ton more, but 
Alex, why don't you close us in prayer? Jesus, thank you so much that like Abigail, you step in the middle of all of the chaos that we create and you offer a a path forward, a way of redemption, a way of forgiveness. Pray that you would help us to listen to your voice and to heed it. We want you to be honored and glorified and so we give you all the praise today and we pray in your name, amen.